Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a pride of Brooklyn, New York. He attended Brandeis University from 1992 to 1995, where he pitched for three years and earned a bachelor's degree in American Studies. In 1994, he played collegiate summer baseball on the Cape Cod League. He was drafted by the New York Mets in the 30th round of the 1995 Major League Baseball Draft. He was 26 years old when he broke into the big leagues on June 3rd, 2000 with the Arizona Diamondbacks, becoming the first Brandeis University alumnus to reach the major leagues. He would go on to have a nine-year major league career playing for the Arizona Diamondbacks, Philadelphia Phillies, Milwaukee Brewers, Pittsburgh Pirates, right here with the New York Mets and Houston Astros. He also played for the Uni President 7-Eleven Lions of the Chinese Professional Baseball League in Taiwan. He also was maybe one of the best post-game studio analysts on the New York Mets SNY broadcast. It is a pleasure to welcome back the brand new pitching coach for the Staten Island Ferry Hawks, Nelson Figueroa to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Nelson. That's a hell of an intro. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good to be back. Awesome to have you here. Before we get to your new job, let's talk a little bit about your career, as well as, unfortunately, a little bit about the lockout. So one of the undercurrents that have arisen during the negotiations um, is getting these younger players paid. Um, and it's also brought up the plight of, of minor league baseball players. We mentioned in the open that you graduated from a very good college, but you try to make it as a major league baseball player. And it took five years in the minors. What were some of the economic challenges you faced while chasing that dream? And how did you weigh that against, you know, your, your college education and what you possibly could have done, you know, in, in uh, the business realm? Well, first and foremost, I think since I was, you know, five years old and first in kindergarten, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was a baseball player. It wasn't an American studies major. Um, having said that, yeah, there were times at the minor league level where, you know, you start wondering if the reality is going to be that the fallback plan of going to college and getting a degree um, is going to be the, your actually true reality. For me, um, like I look at it now and I look back and it's how improbable, how impossible it really was for a guy who came out of college at, you know, barely six foot and barely 130 pounds um, to get a drafted B um, last as long as I did. And to get called up one time to the major leagues, you know, would have been a dream come true. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to play, you know, parts of 11 seasons, uh, nine years in the big leagues with so many ups and downs. Um, but the beginnings were very, very difficult um, because being a 30th round draft pick, you almost got no respect, no credibility compared to now where I see kids and, you know, have two good starts in double A and they're like, oh, let's bring them to the big leagues. And they do. They bring them right to the big leagues. So when I was 21 years old and I'm playing in A ball and I'm leading the minor leagues in strikeouts, I didn't move up. I didn't move up a level. They said, oh, well, he's going to face the same hitters for 10 years. So he's got to keep facing the same hitters to prove he can get them out. I went to the all-star game and I was eight and two with a 0.63 ERA with 110 strikeouts already at the halfway point. But that wasn't good enough to get moved up. So it's a different game now. It's different um, as far as the economics of it. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's great that the players want to look out for the younger guys. And the younger guys who are having monster seasons, they feel they should be rewarded. And that's great. Usually what happens is they get rewarded through arbitration. They get rewarded through free agency. And especially when they're coming up to the big leagues now at 20, 21, 22, whereas uh, I can't believe I'm saying it this way. My Back in my day, <laughs> um, we didn't get to go up until you were 25, 26, because you had to be seasoned. You had to have experienced everything you've had to have success and failed and being able to bounce back again because if you couldn't do it in the minor leagues after you know having success and then failing 
then how are you going to do it at the major league level? And now we're seeing these guys go through, you know, some of the turmoils or some of the ups and downs. And once they hit that down stretch, they don't know how to react. They're just used to being so good, used to being the best pitcher, you know, from their high school days to the college days to right to the pros. And they go right through the system very quickly and they're in the big leagues. And then when they first have adversity or they struggle, you really don't know who they are. They, they seem to be a totally different person. And, you know, the Mets had several pitchers like that um, through my tenure at SNY. So yes, the economics of baseball have definitely changed um, from the days of making $800 a month um, in low A ball, um, having us live three, four five guys in a two bedroom apartment um, just so that, you know, we could split the rent five ways and we'll rent a mattress, we'll rent the TV, or we used to do the old, uh, you know, buy and swap within 30 days at different stores so we could have a TV and then take it back and get our money back. Um, there's a whole lot of different things that you had to do through the minor leagues. And it, it's not even comparable to, you know, worrying about the major league minimum. My minimum at the time, I believe, was 240 um, my first year. And I had to play for the minimum uh, most of my career because accumulating enough days to have the three full years to go to arbitration proved to be difficult with, um, you know, there's, there's a guy in every front office that's looking at that magical date of how many days you need. And they try to keep you below that no matter what. And if they can, they will. And it happened many times. So that that's something that's very, very difficult to swallow because you're at the mercy of the club. Each club has their own system of how they pay a guy that doesn't, is an arbitration eligible. Cause once you get to arbitration, somebody else decides how much you, you should be paid. Um, and before that, the club says, hey, if you have less than three years, we're just going to pay you the minimum. They can. You know, so it's interesting because, like, I'm so torn about this. And you look at it and, you know, when you get to be a minor league player, um, obviously you're the best of the best. You know, you're the best from every single town in, in the country. And, you know, you're, you're an elite athlete. Um, and you're not making a lot of money, but then you take a look at, at other professions, whether it be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. And, you know, a lot of these young teachers are, you know, spending their first five years of their careers paying back their student loans for their degrees. Um, everyone chooses the profession they go to. Um, everyone understands what it takes that, you know, actors and actresses, you know, you go into New York mm-hmm. or California and you see how many of them are doing three jobs just to pay for that dream. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think now there's kind of almost this backlash because of where we are in the world right now, coming off of COVID and people just want baseball. What do you say to those people that say, listen, it's the profession you chose. And, and you know what, if, if baseball here isn't that great, I mean, take a look at you. You went to play in Taiwan, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, what do you say to those people that are, are conflicted? Well, it, it's it's easy if you put it into the perspective of the window of opportunity to be a professional baseball player and especially a major league baseball player. It's probably about five years. Um, you can be a teacher your whole life. You can be a doctor your whole life. You can be. So those other professions, those are lifelong careers you can only pray to make a career out of sports in general, professional sports in general. So while you don't have the wear and tear, like in football, while you don't have the, um, you know, basketball is a very select group because uh, quite frankly, if you're not over six foot five, it's going to be very difficult just to even be, you know, considered for a team. Um, skill set has to be elite, elite. Um, you know, there's only 12 guys per team. Uh, with baseball, you know, it, it's a it's a select group. There's only been 22,000 major league players in the history of the planet, and that's from all over the planet. Whether it's Japan, Korea, um, Mexico, Puerto Rico, all the different countries that I played in, there's only been 22,000 people to ever put on a major league uniform, even for a day. And so when you start to wrap your head around those numbers and you realize that, yes, I I get the hardworking teachers. I think we've learned to appreciate essential workers more than ever um, and not take them for granted that they're just there. Um, We realize the jobs that they do, but those are jobs that can be done for a lifetime. Uh, I think that's the biggest difference is that you're, you're, when you're looking at the value of, of, for a minor league, I remember that class action lawsuit, they broke it down to about 
$2 and 20 cents an hour because you have to be at the ballpark at two o'clock. You don't get done at the ballpark until 11 o'clock. And when you're on the road, they were giving you $20 a day for your meal money, which 13 of it was going to the clubhouse guy just to wash your uniforms and to have one meal. He only had to provide one meal for you guys. So whether it was he provided a dinner after the game or he provided a lunch before the game, if he provided a lunch and a dinner, then you wound up tipping even more. So that 20 bucks is gone. Um, and then you still have to figure out what you're going to do for breakfast. So that usually led to the continental breakfast, hopefully at the hotel guys waking up early just to, you know, fight over the waffle machine. Um, so yeah, I, I think it is a profession that you choose and it's a dream come true. And it's one of those things that, uh, listen, I took great pride in anytime I went in and out of the country and I had to put down on my uh, customs forms occupation, baseball player, I giggled every single time. Because I knew that the person at the counter would look at me like up and down, like, you're a baseball player. That's what you do. You get paid to play baseball. And <laughs> the answer was yes. Yes, I do. So I I, I feel that that's the only uh, big difference. Everybody has to, you know, you have a craft, you have a skill, you have a an art. Um, you have to bust your ass. You know, actors, I, I go to Ellen's Stardust Diner all the time here in Manhattan. And that is a fantastic fantastic place to go because you see people who have actually been on Broadway which is the pinnacle for you know an actor and actress in the theater um they're working tables and they get an opportunity to sing and to perform and you get to hear these voices and it's a it's a great place to go and you feel bad because you're like they're too talented to be you know serving fries they shouldn't be serving fries right now they should be on stage and you know it's 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 always going to be that way so I I don't look at anybody else's profession and, and bash it, but it's easy for the fans to sit there and go, oh my God, they're so greedy. They want millions of dollars. They want this, they want that. And what it's actually been is the players have wanted millions of dollars, not for them, for the generations that are coming up behind them. Um, and it's always been that way. It's always been this generation is going to sacrifice for the next generation. And yes, I get it. Being a millionaire is a great sacrifice, but 66% of the players make under a million dollars 66 percent. so it's not as if every player is a million a millionaire you have to make it to arbitration to be even considered to get that bump up to a million remember jacob de in his third or fourth year uh was at like 509 i think it was he got like 500 was the minimum he was getting nine grand over that and he had already made the all-star team been to a world series and was proving to be the best pitcher on the mets at the time even though other people had bigger names um, he was the most consistent. And so you just have to look right there at Jacob DeGrom to see exactly how the salary structure was set up in baseball. So what, one more on the lockout because we, we, we've been talking about it for so long. <laughs> you went right into that quick, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, in speaking, to, my son is in his 30s and he says, you know, this isn't going to damage the game long term. People are going to come back, you know, but if you listen to talk radio and I guess it you know, you hear this through every single lockout. And unfortunately, I, I think there has been some attrition in, in the fan base because of these various lockouts. What do you think this particular lockout, the canceling of the first two series is going to have on the overall health of the game? I don't know. I could tell you right now, getting through COVID without being able to go to the ballpark. And as soon as it was open, I, there was not a single person who said, screw this. I'm not going to a game. This is different because, you know, uh, the owners locked out the players. I think they need to understand that. Fans need to understand that. The players didn't strike. The players didn't say, we're not playing until we get more money. The players had been locked out. And what they're trying to do is get a fair agreement um, and, and get things handled. They looked like they were making very good progress. Even owners pushed back the deadline. But the owners didn't. They kept their deadline. They were the ones who canceled it. So that was up to the owners. Even now, like these past five days or, you know, since they could have been negotiating, they could have been sitting at the table trying to get something done instead of pushing things to the 11th hour, which again, owners with the lockout never reached out for 46 days. So they took their time. They drug their feet on this whole process because they wanted to stress out the union, which is the strongest union in all of sports. And it's been known that way for, you know, since the seventies. And now what you're looking at is uh, where it's finally gotten to a stalemate where the players said, we're not budging on this one. We're not budging. We, we're, we're wanting the game to be better. 
And what that means is it shouldn't be the same eight teams having a chance to win the World Series because they're A, spending money, B, developing talent, C, you know, finding ways to win, um, you know, because you've got to include Tampa Bay in that discussion when it comes to teams trying to win, even though they're not spending a lot of money. So they're the, they're the prime example where it's 63 million compared to the, say, the Pirates at 40 million. Uh, and yet every year Tampa's right there in the AL East and they're at the top of, of the AL East you have to realize that there's ways to play winning baseball, ways to develop winners, ways to just, if you're a business owner, your product should be marketable. Your product should be sellable. Your product should be wanted. And if you're not running it that way, if you're not competing, so players have to compete and at a elite level, as you said, just to make it to the major leagues and to stay in the major leagues, you have to be able to do it on a day in and day out basis. You can't slack off. You can't be like, eh, I don't feel like it today. Ownership. They don't have to, you know why? Because they know that the top eight teams that spend, they're going to get a cut of that money and they're going to sit back in their pockets. are going to get lines regardless. And do they reinvest it? No, they've proven that over the years. The Pittsburgh Pirates haven't had to do a darn thing. Uh, except they're, oh, you know, we're going young this year. We're going to really try to compete. And they never make those moves. They never. And so it kills free agency market because, again, now the free agency market, instead of being 30 teams vying for your services, you have eight teams. And of those eight teams, they're usually stacked with stars anyway. And you're not a good fit because you don't do X, Y, or Z. That doesn't mean you're not a good Major League Baseball player. Todd Frazier is a, a prime example of a guy who's, you know, he's not 38 years old and he's already out of baseball. Pretty much. I don't think he's going to get an opportunity to get a job. And he's a person capable of hitting 35, 40 home runs and plays good defense. And he's a good clubhouse guy. All those things that you came up having to be to stay around. Now they're like, well, you're just old. And that used to happen to me at the end of my career in the minors. I was getting released. Why am I getting released? I'm first in the team and wins. I'm second in the team in ERA. Why am I getting released? Um, you're the oldest guy on the team. Okay. I don't have a choice in that. I said, I, I, if, if I'm not dead, I'm going to continue to get older every day. So that's not a reason. That, that There's never been a reason. I, I, tell kids, I tell kids now, once you get to 60, 90, at 15 years, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, you're competing against major league players now. You're not competing against 15-year-olds. Everybody plays on the same field. It's the same dimensions everywhere. So th there's no longer where it should be an age thing. It should be a competitiveness. Can you compete? Can you excel? And when given the opportunity, I think what we saw with COVID is that we saw there's a lot of 20-year-olds who can compete at the major league level. And they said, well, 20-year-olds are kind of cheap and we can keep sending them down and optioning them down. And then you're only getting prorated. That's what I think a lot of fans don't know either is that you don't get paid the major league minimum all year long just because you made the big leagues. You go back down, you get your minor league salary again. So you're only making that major league salary while you're in the big leagues. And so if they can recycle that, say, fifth roster spot with four guys, then they're paying $600,000 now for four guys to come up and down, up and down, up and down, be in the big leagues for a fifth starter. Whereas back in the day, well, that fifth starter is probably making a couple million dollars. Now they can do that for $600,000. So controlling all those four guys' times now because they're not making full seasons yet controlling four guys' salary, it, it really starts to add up whether economics of baseball can be churned out and you can be that bottom dweller team, the Royals, uh, the Pirates, you know, where every 35 years the Royals pop up and, you know, they, they made it to the World Series, they win the World Series, you know, they went back to back. And then after that, it was like, oh my God, we can't afford to keep these guys. They could, it would just put a stress and strain because now all of a sudden, instead of making money, they would be losing money. And owners don't want to lose money, even though the team isn't their number one priority. Owners are owners because they have been successful in other business ventures. They have been successful in other realms of business, and they're very good at what they do. But the ball club is usually that luxury for them and also like a tax write-off because they're losing money by providing entertainment and services and jobs and everything else. So I, I don't know too many owners that think they're going to get it from both sides of, of, you know, winning this thing. Look at the Dodgers for the last eight years. They've spent over $300 million on the regular and they have one world series from it. So it's not a formula for success. 
at the same time, you want it to be competitive for all and you want teams to try. The bottom, you know, the bottom 10 teams have to be better at signing guys, have to be better at competing because right now the way it's set up with the draft, if you lose, you win. You're going to get a first round draft pick. You're going to get top 10 pick just for being the worst. So the players union wants to change that. They want to make it the, you know, the next six teams that don't make the playoffs get the first six picks because you tried to make it to the playoffs. You gave an effort and, you know, go from there. And as always, you can trade those and they have value as well. So I I think what the players are trying to do is, is, is make the game and keep the game as competitive, as fun. Uh, if you if they want to go with this, you know, let the kids play and, and have more, you know, under 25 than over 25, that's on ownership. That That's on ownership, you know, deciding that, hey, that these 22-year-olds can play the same brand of baseball that a 32-year-old can play, but the 32-year-old will make less mistakes. The 32-year-old knows how to pace himself. The 32-year-old has been there and done that when it's come to, you know, a multitude of situations where there's value in that. Some teams realize it and they usually realize it right around the trade deadline when they start accusing all these veteran players, right? And they're trying to build that winning culture all of a sudden because in the beginning, it's like, oh my God, we're we're actually in this thing. So if you have expanded playoffs with more teams, now you have more teams thinking, oh my God, we have a shot at this. Then you're going to start seeing these older players changing teams so that they can get younger prospects back in return. The older player goes and has a chance at a championship, but it seems like it's the same thing over and over in that, in that aspect, right? It's a rinse and repeat formula that almost seems to work every time because they get to the world series at least. And that's what the goal is. But I think overall, when the off season comes and teams are sitting there, they don't want to pay for a used vehicle when it's, they can get the same thing brand, brand new and shiny at 20 years old. Nice. All right. So let's get back to your career and how it relates to your new position as a pitching coach of the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. Um, Coming through the minor leagues, was there a particular pitching coach that had a a huge impact on your career? And, you know, now seeing yourself in that role, you know, has come somewhat full circle. What are your feelings about that? It's funny because I sat back the other day and I just started brainstorming through all my coaches and, and, Every one of them, it, you know, I was always a kid who wanted to learn. And before we had the analytics, before we all had those things, I had these pitching coaches that each taught me a little bit of something. Um, whether my first pitching coach, literally, I, I, I'm pretty sure he challenged me to a fist fight on day three. Um, he, he came out to the mound and I had walked the batter on four pitches. The next batter I threw ball one and all of a sudden he calls time he comes jogging out to the mound comes up to me and he goes you're gonna throw a strike i go i'm trying he goes try try i can get that old man in the third row to try he goes you're a paid professional you do and he walked away i was like oh my god like he stared me down i was like oh jesus of course i threw a strike the next pitch get out of the inning and i walk in there and he comes over and he like fist bumps me but he's like staring into my soul and i was like okay i see this is what pro ball is about I walked one guy and, you know, he came right out at me. So you have to change your level of expectation. You have to change your standard. Um, He would challenge me just when I was doing my running. If I was doing my running and I slowed down for one of the other pitchers to run with them, he's like, why are you slowing down? He goes, I think, he goes, who's the best pitcher on this team? I said, me. He goes, well, I think I'm the best pitcher on this team. I go, you don't pitch anymore. He goes, I'm the number two guy right behind you. He goes, and the moment that you, slow down. I'm going to speed up. He goes, you understand what I'm saying? I go, yeah, but you know, I just wanted to make sure he got done with his running. I already finished mine. I just did extra. He goes, Oh, you were doing extra running. Oh, 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 okay. Okay. So next time do it faster. I'm like, Jesus, I can't please this guy. So that was my very first one was Dave Jordan. Um, and this is before we had Google. So you didn't know about these guys unless you saw one of their baseball cards. Right. Um, I had Dave Jordan, I had Rick Waits, I had Chuck Niffin, who was my absolute favorite, and I'll get into why, uh, Billy Champion. Um, I, I had pitching coaches in, in big league camp who weren't the big league pitching coach um, and taught me how to throw a slider where I struggled my whole career coming up to get a slider because I was a, a 
big slow curveball guy. You know, I could slurve it. I could change the angle. I could make it faster. I could make it slower. But I couldn't get a true slider. And he explained to me the way to hold it and 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 just position it and, and kind of set it before I was going to throw it. And it made sense. And I remember I was with the uh, Philadelphia Phillies. And he says to me, you know, just cock it to this left side and don't get your fingers around the ball, but cock it to the left side and throw it like a fastball anyway. And it'll just spin over your fingers and it'll have a tight spin. And I'm warming up the bullpen and I'm like, wow, that, that kind of works. I went out there and I probably threw 12 of them to three left-handed batters and I struck out the side. And I go back in and the media comes out and they're like, wow, you know, impressive, you know, outing, blah, blah, blah. What do you attribute to? I go, I just learned how to throw a slider. And they're like, what? What do you mean you just learned how to throw a slider? I go, well, I just learned how to throw a slide, a particular kind of slider. And I was able to control it on both sides of the plate. And I have to thank, you know, Carlos Arroyo um, for showing me, you know, this grip. And of course, they went running over to Carlos Arroyo and he was trying to explain it. And they couldn't understand because it wasn't in layman's terms. Um, but that's kind of the thing. Like I've always picked up a little bit from every single coach because everyone has value. There's something that they've done, something they've seen, you know, uh, holding a baseball is different for everybody. So, uh, Chuck Niffin, however, this is a man who was left-handed in the Expos organization and he pitched at the AAA level for 13 years and never got called up. My first year with the Arizona Diamondbacks after the trade in 98, 99, I'm in big league camp. I'm, I'm impressing. I'm doing well. I'm leading the team in the, in the triple crown of pitching, right? Wins, ERA, strikeouts. I'm, I'm leading the team in that. And I'm the only one who hasn't gotten called up because it was an expansion team. So they constantly were calling guys up. I'm the only one that's not getting called up. We get to September 1st thinking 40, you know, the, the, for 40 man roster, they're going to expand. And the pitching coordinator turns around to me and he goes, are you on the roster? I go, no. He goes, huh? He goes, they screwed you. And I'm like, ah, this is going to be like that good cop, bad cop thing. Right. You know, we get inside and then they'll be like, ah, you made it to the big leagues. And we went inside and he came over to me and he just was shaking his head and, you know, gave me a hug. Chuck Niffin did. And I was like, so I'm really not getting called up. And he's like, no, he goes, I, I, I can't believe this. He's like, you deserved it more than anybody. So we sat down and we talked over a beer and he told me about his story. And I was like, wait a minute, let me get this right. So you were good enough to be in AAA for 13 years. You're left-handed and you never, not, he goes, not once, not once. <laughs> and I go, how did you keep coming back? He goes, because I knew that might've been a shot. So just for it, the possibility of it, I had to be, you know, present for it. I had to work hard. I had to be good enough to keep getting a job offer, but I wasn't good enough to get that call. And like, I immediately was like, I was 24 and I was like, I'm an idiot. I'm such a jerk. I'm like, here's a guy who has spent his whole career, you know, being so close and I'm 24 and thinking I'm, I'm too old to be in AAA. This sucks. This sucks. So I learned life lessons like that from Chuck Niffin and, and constantly he was, uh, he would catch bullpens. He was left-handed, got a left-handed catcher's mitt and here he is catching bullpens and I'm working on my split finger and it's like a knuckleball at 80 miles an hour. And he's trying to catch it without, you know, losing teeth, but he would constantly be working with me and, and he made me better for understanding that with things that you couldn't control. But once you have that ball in your hand and you can control your effort. Uh, your execution, that was the most important thing because you're not pitching for third, you're not pitching for the one team that you're on. You're pitching for 29 other teams to say, get me the hell out of here. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you went to Brandeis at the same time my nephew did. And my nephew would tell me about, oh, this great pitcher. So, you know, I, I would follow your career and because, you know, you somewhat have a vested interest in someone that says, oh, this guy's going to be a major leaguer one day. And one of the things I remember you saying, I'm pretty sure it was when you were at the Nashville Sounds was, I'm going to pitch the way I can, whatever level they put me at. I don't have any control of whether it's in the big leagues, triple A, double A. I'm just going to take the ball every five days, give him my best effort, go out there. I'm just a guy that can go out there, get outs. Um, if you give me the ball in the first inning, I can be your starter. If you give me the ball in the last inning, I can be your closer. It doesn't matter to me. I just go out there and get outs. Um, that's a mentality that 
is so perfect for the Atlantic League. Um, how do you try and get that mentality into a pitcher who in his head might only see his shot as, you know, I have to be a starter, I have to be a middle guy. You know, how do you get that mentality into a player who's trying to get to the pros or back to the pros in the Atlantic League? Yeah, I, I think being that was I'm one of the success stories of the Atlantic League. And and for me, it's 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 bittersweet because I didn't spend a lot of time in the Atlantic League. I was very fortunate. It was only two starts. Um, in the Atlantic League, and then the Nationals called because my pitching coach from Pittsburgh wound up being a special advisor with them, and he called me and he said, are you healthy? I said, yeah. He goes, don't lie to me. I said, I'm healthy. He goes, all right, we need somebody. We just had an 18-inning game in the beginning of the week and a 24-inning game last night. We need pitching. Uh, so when did you last pitch? I told him. He's like, can you start tomorrow? I said, yeah. He goes, all right, we're going to get you out of there. And uh, you'll start tomorrow. Give us what you got. So I was like grateful for the opportunity. I was coming back from my surgery still. So my velocity wasn't peaked. I hadn't been working with an organization. The Ducks were the first organization that I had signed with. So just getting my arm strength back and being in a routine every day of playing catch and moving around, you know, with guys who are upper level, not just, you know, some of the high school kids or or uh, junior college kids around that could play catch with me. Uh, you know, I, I, I jumped at that that opportunity. So for the guys that I'm going to be receiving, um, it's twofold, right? I, I'm going to be receiving some guys who are mid 95, you know, mid nineties, 95, 96 mile hour fastballs, you know, have great spin rates can do all these different things, but there's gotta be a reason why they're there. Right. So I want them to sit down with each, I'm going to sit down with each and every one of them. And I'm going to ask them, honestly, why do you think you're here? Why do you think you're here? Because I can show you pictures that you comp, to like i can show you exactly who stuff you're you have better stuff than then why are you here what is it that we need to get you back or get you to another level so that i never see your face again that's that's my goal my goal is not to have guys come in here and be lifers uh with the fairy hogs i, I want them to be able to contribute to us winning but at the same time my goal is to get them the hell out of there and get them back to organized baseball so they have a chance to be in the big leagues um, so I, I, it's a reality check. Honestly, you, you can't be a guy who's throwing mid nineties where you have this elite ability to, for velocity, but you can't get outs. You can't throw strikes. You can't hold runners on. You can't. So there's gotta be something. And so I want them to be honest and want them to figure it out. And those are the things we'll work on, whether it's on a daily basis, whether it's on a weekly tuning up kind of basis. But I think that my experience of being both a starter and a reliever and having to swallow those pills of you know been a starter my whole career put up great numbers in the minor leagues and then i get to the big leagues and it's like yeah we're gonna have to make you a reliever and and they're like well you have a rubber arm well okay but what role am i in oh you're the long man which means i only pitch if we're losing great that sounds awesome so I go, I basically have to wake up and, and go, I hope the starter gets his, you know, butt kicked today so I can pitch. Uh, I went 19 days at times up in the big leagues without pitching. And then, of course, when you're with you're with the Philadelphia Phillies and you had that staff with Roy Halladay and Hamels and, and Moyer, these guys are going seven plus every time out and they're going right to their bullpen guys, you know, Romero and and Lidge to shut down the door and you're sitting there going, okay, you know, if we go to extra innings, Hey, I'm in the game. So it's, it's, there are things that you need to learn. And usually it's, it's an ego check more than anything. It's not a physical thing. It's not, it's not a, it's not a, you know, can you compete? It's, you know, it's an ego check of, you know what, I got to do whatever they think is best for the team. And if I can prove that I can do that. So for lefties that are in the bullpen, you got to get every lefty out. For righties in the bullpen, you know, you got to get righties out. Now it's different, though, because where you have to pitch the full inning, you can't just be a lefty guy, right? So everything is is been updated. So you, you have to have something that can go either way. You have to be able to move balls around. You have to be able to pitch and get outs. Like that quote said, <laughs> I... I I'm very, very big on, um, to me, it was, I got stronger as I went on as a starter in the game. And I thought that would prove value to a lot of scouts. 
because scouts sat there and they would watch these guys who came in late in the game. And they're like, he's throwing 98 miles an hour. He's got tremendous arm strength. And I go, no, he's got tremendous arm speed and he's only doing it for one inning. However, I started the game off at 88 and my last fastball was 92. That to me is arm strength because I'm able to do that and I'm going to bounce back. And the fact that I could probably do it on day three instead of day five, that's arm strength. So I, I have a difference of opinion when it comes to that. But I think players, more than anything, they want an opportunity. Um, and hopefully the way that I was molded and I was taught and, and I learned a lot from coaches, I'll have a lot to offer these guys. And the guys that need analytics will get analytics. The guys that need uh, a kick in the ass will get a kick in the ass. And uh, that's kind of what my coaching philosophy is going to be. And um, it, it, it's going to be new. I've done some pitching coaching before with uh, in the Dominican Republic. I was an assistant pitching coach this past December um, and I was a pitching coach in Taiwan while I was playing, um, was able to really, um, it was amazing without having mastery of the language, the universal language of baseball, being able to just show them. Um, while I'm still pitching exactly, you know, how I like to work, what makes sense to me. I was teaching them how to have a third pitch. Most of the relievers are, you know, two pitch pitchers, fastball slider, fastball split. And I go, you guys have been pitching against the same competition for, you know, 10 years now. You guys have been on this island forever. They know you, what you throw. I go, you know what they don't know? That you might have learned something new. And they go, you're going to teach us how to throw something? I go, no, I'm going to teach you how to shake your head three times. Just shake your head. Now they think you got a third pitch. I go, while you're warming up, bounce something in the dirt, whether it's a split finger or just throw it in the dirt. They can't tell if it has good spin. They can't tell what you threw. They just know that you showed the catcher, hey, I'm throwing a split finger, and you throw a fastball in the dirt, and they're going to be like, oh, my God, I was a 90-mile-an-hour split finger. <gasps> and now when you shake off more than two times, oh, my God, he's going to his third pitch. And it doesn't have to be that. But now that you just put a little bit of confusion in the hitter's head. And they go, oh, wow. And so when news broke out that that was what I was doing, they go, aren't you afraid that they're going to catch on to that? I go, nope, because now they're going to think, does he really have a third pitch or doesn't he have a third pitch? And, and you still win. Just got to put a little bit of doubt in the hitter's head because hitting is the most difficult thing to do in all sports. So you mentioned the analytics, and there's so many new ways of analyzing pitchers, whether it be using the Rapsodo or the new buzzword is VAA, vertical approach angle, which is the angle in which the pitcher, you know, the pitch crosses the plate, basically the opposite of launch angle. Um, you know, you take a look mm -hmm. at all these things that are available to pitchers. Do you ever wonder, you know, because, you know, as you were a guy that really studied the game and, and really was a student, really honed his craft. You ever wonder what your career would be like if you were a young player now? Um, yeah, you know, I because I, I see all these spin rate things and I, I try them and stuff. And at 47, I'm not impressing anybody with my spin rates. And I was like, oh, you should have seen my spin. I could make the ball spin. Like it's been quoted many a time from many a manager. Man, this kid can spin the ball. Um, so I would have loved to see how I, I would have fared on, on those metrics and if it would have mattered, you know, like it would have been different where my biggest thing I think I learned from a, watching a guy like Greg Maddox was it was visual velocity. It was how well he hid the ball. It was how well he was able to make the ball move and locate the ball. Um, and when he wanted to pitch up for effect, it made the ball seem faster when he pitched down and away. He was able to make it seem like the ball moved more. He didn't have a nasty breaking ball. He had a, a cutter that, you know, went away from the right hand or in on the lefty. He had a disgusting ability to throw a change up in any count with any situation. Um, and he was pinpoint accuracy. The man didn't waste pitches. He wasn't the, oh, watch this, 0-2, I'm going to throw it in the other batter's box. He was 0-2, I'm going to put it on the black again because I did it at 0 and 0-1 and I'm going to do, I'm going to do it on O2 and he would punch people out in three pitches or less. Or, and I do say less, cause I think he had a couple of two pitch strikeouts. Only Maddox could possibly do it, but he was that kind of pitcher that, that it would, you just marvel because he's mowing through major league hitters throwing less than 90 miles an hour. And the hitters are just befuddled. And the only one that could even come close, um, you know, is the kid from uh, the Cubs, um, Kendricks, he's he's amazing. 
the way that he is able to use his pitches and his change up and in, in fastball counts and he he pitches like a young Maddox and he's not overpowering he's not trying to throw hard but all you see is weak contact after weak contact and and his ability to move the ball around um that to me is is way more impressive and that's pitching I think in this day and age with the analytics, I might've been too in love with them. <laughs> uh, I, I, I have kids now that I've seen throw and I had a guy who was trying to make a comeback and I'll never forget this. He, he's, he threw 93 miles an hour. He had a catcher set up down and away to a righty. And he threw a ball about 14 feet over the catcher's head to the right. And he turned around and he looked at the metrics and it said 2,600 RPMs on the, on the spin of the fastball. And he goes, perfect. That's exactly what I want. And I look at him and I go, why did you bring a catcher here today? I go, you missed the catcher by 14 feet, dude. I go, you think 93 is going to make a scout go, wow. I'm going to explain to you. 93 is the new 87. And if you can't locate it, not once, but like six times out of 10, you're not impressing anyone. And he was like, yeah, but, you know, if I can't show this, I go, that's not true. Don't worry about what the spin rates are. I said, I, I, my spin rates are 1,800 on my on my fastball. But I guarantee you it doesn't look like I'm only throwing 80 miles an hour. I guarantee you that the ball gets in on you and moves late. Uh, so you have to realize that all these metrics are great and they're a tool to show somebody and, and help somebody. But I think we've been doing it for years. It's like, like I said about my pitching coaches, their eyes could tell about the spin, the direction of the spin, yeah. the rotation, the kind of break that it has, the depth, the the VAA, all, all that stuff where we're talking about um, throwing the ball downhill was what we were taught forever in baseball, right? You want to throw the ball downhill. It's harder to see. It's harder to hit. Well, now if they're taking that upswing approach, you're kind of going right into it. And so guys like Jacob DeGrom who can pitch up in the zone, they're like, the hottest commodity you're like oh my god you can't get launch angle at a ball that seems to be rising but there's not a lot of guys who've done that because we were taught so many years Syndergaard is a perfect example he's straight up and down trying to pound the bottom part of the zone and he can't pitch up in the zone he's not flexible enough he's not uh his mechanics don't allow him to really work the top of the zone and anytime that he's tried to throw up in the zone it's usually to the backstop i.e the utley pitch um, he's not very capable of, of repeating that the same delivery to put the ball in the top half of the strike zone. But at the bottom half, he's competing because he can throw 102 miles an hour. So guys like that is where you start looking at it. it if the game has changed and the approach from the hitters has changed, then there's got to be other ways to adapt to it. The rule number one for me has always been pitching inside making guys aware that you will pitch inside and pitching inside isn't throwing once a, once an inning inside on a guy pitching inside means throwing two, three, four pitches in a row off the plate to make somebody uncomfortable. What's changed in baseball as well, the armor, all the body armor. It gives these guys a sense of, you know, it won't hurt if it hits me yet when they do get hit, you still see them wince and get pissed off because they don't want to be hit. They want to play a very expensive game of batting practice out over the plate. And that's not where somebody like me could live. Awesome. You know, lots of players use the Atlantic League in hopes of getting back to the majors. You take a look at your skill set, um, everything you've experienced in the game, uh, you, your time as a, a studio analyst. Do you have any aspirations of maybe being a pitching coach in the major leagues? Oh, of course. Of course. And I think that's one of the reasons that I took this job is to pad the resume where, you know, before it was, well, you haven't done it in organized baseball. Well, you haven't done it at the professional ranks. Well, and I was like, I've actually been a pitching coach without being a pitching coach the latter half of my career. Um, there are probably five or six guys that I helped along the way. And I, I think this is where it kind of clicks for me that I, I wanted to really start doing this. The um going into tv was a surprise for me uh, i wasn't expecting to do that so right after my career ended i thought more on the coaching side but i was very afraid of 
coaching at the lower levels where I would get these guys who are, you know, high draft picks and would be like, oh, you know, you were 30th rounder with a 4.5 ERA. What the hell do you know? Kind of thing. And it's actually been the opposite. It's actually been, oh, my God, you played for a long, long time. And, you know, you you pitched against the steroid era. And, you know, I started getting some credibility because of that, because that's where I, that's where I pitched most of my career was during the steroid era. So I I realize now that um, I have been to where these guys want to go. And if they could have half my career, they would be fortunate. And they've said that and it changed my perspective on things. Having said that, in winter ball, I helped a kid named Chris Johnson. He was a guy who was on the way out. He was double A with the Boston Red Sox, you know, touched triple A a little bit, had gotten released. He's pitching with me in Dominican Republic. We work together every day and I would tell him, you know, got good stuff. We need to work on this. We need to work on that, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden he has the season for the ages. I want to say he had a 1.3 ERA in the Dominican Winter League, which is unheard of. Um, He winds up signing with Japan, has a great career in Japan, made millions of dollars. And um, he immediately like wrote to me and, and, and thanked me so much and said that had he never met me, he, it, none of that would have happened. And that really, you know, like I, I was taken back by that. Fast forward to 2013, we were in the WBC and in the WBC, I was um, uh, with Team Puerto Rico. And Burgos was one of our pitchers. He comes over to me and I could see him like wanting to talk to me, but not wanting to talk to me, but not we're at breakfast. Finally, he comes over and he's like, all right, I just have to say something. I go, what? He goes, so you're not going to remember this. I go, try me. He goes, when you were in Caguas a couple years ago, he goes, I was throwing a bullpen by myself, no coach, no nothing. And you came over and you watched me and you asked me to try a few things and you explained some things to me. He goes, And I had been in a ball for four years. He goes, I made it to the big leagues last year. He goes, and I I said, if I ever had the opportunity to meet you again, that I wanted to thank you. He goes, can I give you a hug? And I started laughing. I go, of course you can. He goes, you, you changed my life. He goes, I, I goes, I couldn't get out of a ball. He goes, no coach could, could do what you did. And here it was, we met one day, one bullpen session, and I just changed just a couple of things of the way he was throwing the baseball and it clicked for him. And so I think that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for more of those moments of seeing the light bulb go off, seeing that thing click, seeing that that guy get to a point where it becomes less mechanical, less analytical, less um, mental, and it just becomes what it's been his whole life before he had to come to the Atlantic league. And before he signed the pro contract, it becomes for the love of the game. And you can just sit back and play it and throw a baseball. Awesome. Nelson, thanks so much for your time today. You know, I was so looking forward to, you know, the Long Island ducks versus the Ferry Hawks before you signed up, you know, Edgardo <laughs> versus Wally. Now it's oh, even yeah. better. You know, I'm going to, you know, I cover a lot of the Ducks games, but we're also going to take the ride out to Staten Island as well. Awesome. Um, I have to throw in one inside joke. There's no truth to the rumor that um, you're giving Bobby Wellen a tryout for the Ferry Hawks. <laughs> well, here's the beauty. We have open tryouts come April 2nd. Um, oh, no, and then we have invitational tryouts after that. So open tryout on April 2nd. Bobby Whalen, Bobby Whalen shows up. Bobby Whalen will get a tryout. And like I said, you know, you got to build a staff that is able to compete and do a little bit of everything. So if we need a guy who can throw a 35 mile an hour curveball, I think that's our guy. <laughs> uh, you said open tryouts. You know that Ed Moore's going to be there now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, I, I imagine. I imagine I'm going to see a lot of the fantasy camp guys, and I, I I welcome them with open arms. I can't wait. They've all reached out, um, and. They're excited and I'm excited and, and it's just, it, you know, it's a, I would say a new chapter, but for me, it's, it's finally like, I've been writing this thing for a while and it's now being published. You know what I mean? Like it's been in the works for a while and, and I couldn't be happier with the people I'm surrounded with. Edgardo Alfonso being the manager and, and legitimately the, the night that he got 
introduced as the manager, he called me from the dinner and he says, Tarzan, uh, what are you doing this year? And I go, same thing I've been doing, you know, teaching the kids and, and uh, doing my podcasts. And he's like, I need you. I go, need me for what? And he's like, I need you to be my pitching coach. And I said, let me think about it. You know, let me kind of talk it over with the family. Let's see, you know, what, what, uh, what kind of sense we can make of this thing. I go, because it's Staten Island now. So now it's getting too close to home, uh, living in Weehawken. So it's not a far trip. You know, I can commute. Uh, my family from Brooklyn, you know, would be out there. All my friends from Staten Island, Wanaka's already, you know, ready for season tickets. Um, so I, I sat back for a few weeks, for a few weeks and um, just kept putting things together. And then Gary Perone, of course, I've known him for God so long and he's such a great guy to me and my family over the 20 years that he was with the Cyclones in Coney Islands. So we have that Brooklyn connection. We've had, uh, you know, we've all worked for the Mets and then, you know, we've had our ups and downs with the organization. So I think we know how things can be run and should be run. Um, so that's one of the things that having a guy like Gary Perone in your corner really helps. Eddie Medina who's in charge of baseball ops um, you know, he, he was an up and coming player himself. And so he understands the value of the Atlantic League and, and, and the opportunities that can come from it. And I just think Staten Island has been clamoring for baseball since the Yankees pulled out on them. And I, I think, um, you know, we're going to be that perfect fit because we're going to try and make it a, a community thing the same way they did in Coney Island uh, and, and everybody enjoyed it and everybody would come around and they were always packed. Um, you know, we, we got already Pete Davidson is uh, one of our <laughs> biggest fans. He follows three things on Instagram and we're one of them. So that's a tremendous boost to us. And we're excited, you know, to have Pete as a part, as a, a partial owner of the team. And, um, you know, we're looking forward to a, a very fun season out on Staten Island. And I think it's going to be some really good baseball. And uh, I, I just hope it's not the only baseball, but if it is no better place to come watch a game than uh, in Staten Island with us. You know, forget Colin Jost and Michael Che also partners in, in the Ferry Hawks. So maybe, maybe it'll be a Nelson Figueroa sighting on a weekend update. Uh, we look forward to seeing you <laughs> on the field for sure. And hopefully one day in a major league uniform as a coach. Nelson, as always, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much. You got a former New York Met, Long Island Duck, and current pitching coach for the brand new Staten Island Ferry Hawks, Nelson Figueroa. 